What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular story podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with a very special Midnight Myth episode. This is our, drumroll please, 200th Midnight Myth episode. 200, baby. Honestly, when we started this five years ago, we had no idea that we would still be doing this so many years after the beginning of the podcast. And it is truly humbling. It is truly grateful. It is in the spirit of that humility and gratitude that we bring you this episode. Because if nobody listened, maybe we would do this, but people actually listen to our podcast. And that is really one of the most amazing feelings of my adult life. The Midnight Myth has become, if I may speak for you, Laurel, our passion project. The thing that we do that we really do love the most, um, other than spending time with our family. And here we are in our 200th episode. If you've been following us on social media, if you listened to our bonus Q&A, you know what this is about. This is us diving into what some call the greatest movie ever made. Arguably, that is true. It is certainly a contender. It is a classic of modern American cinema. It is the story of the rise, fall, and rebirth of a great American mafiosa family. We are talking about one of the five families, the Corleones. This is our episode on Francis Ford Coppola's the Godfather. Woohoo! Yes, wonderful intro there. That is a really great way to describe this movie as in contention for one of the greatest movies of all time, but this American myth and something by a director that we truly admire, a director who we have revisited a few times in the past year. We did some really wonderful episodes on Bram Stoker's Dracula and Apocalypse Now. Have we ever done another Coppola? I don't know, uh, but we're big fans. I don't think so. Yeah, and I think it's very fitting that we are doing this as our 200th episode. Also, episode one featured some analysis of Bram Stoker's Dracula, so Coppola has come full circle with us. It is truly incredible and humbling to be here 200 episodes later, plus some bonus episodes here and there and some multi-parters, so God knows we're probably in like 250 actual episodes in the feed but we are so grateful that you have been with us for however long you've been with us on this journey. 
if you've been here since the beginning, if you just found us, if you found us somewhere in the middle, we love you. We are grateful to you and we are so happy to share this space with you. Um, just to get a little bit vulnerable here in the beginning, this is something that brought us together as a couple. If you've listened since the beginning, you know we were just boyfriend and girlfriend when this all started out. We had just moved in together and adopted a cat. And now we are married for more than three years. We have a beautiful 15-month-old boy. We have bought our own home. We started a business together. We've started other projects spinning off of the Midnight Myth that have also brought us great creative fulfillment. And it's just really amazing that you, whoever's ears we're now speaking into, are a part of this project and this experiment with us. Absolutely. And we have two cats now, not just one. We have two cats. Yeah. And I also owe one of our dear Midnight Myth listeners a most sincerest apology. Scott, at Mythic Path on Twitter, went on my Twitter feed and asked us a question for the Q&A. And lo and behold, when we did the Q&A, I never even looked at my Twitter feed, forgetting that anyone would even dare talk to me specifically. And I was like, hey, Derek, did anybody ask you on your Twitter feed? And I was like, no, nobody asked me anything. Yeah, nobody asked me anything. <laughs> and of course, there was a brilliant and awesome question from Scott, and he asked us who our favorite tricksters are and why, and that didn't make it to our Q&A. So really quickly, I love the trickster archetype. I think the trickster archetype is deep embedded in our mythological consciousness, in our story consciousness. Obviously, there's Loki from the MCU. I also love the Joker, another one of the great tricksters out there in popular culture. Do you have any favorite tricksters? Arthur Jones. Our son? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, just man of mischief. And uh, also Ferris Bueller, I think, conforms to the trickster archetype as well. Yeah, so, for sure. Lots of great tricksters. It re We thought about it a lot, and we may even just do an episode inspired by tricksters. So sorry for you know not making it into the Q&A, Scott, but you get a special shout out on our 200th episode, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. All right. Before we roll up our sleeves and get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, my thing is just, we would love to hear from you. It is so awesome to get a hi, a hello, a word of thanks, a question, anything. So please hit us up on Twitter. We're at The Midnight Myth. We are on Facebook and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And we're on the World Wide Web at MidnightMyth.com. You can also find merch and our Patreon there, as well as blogs and extra content. We have our own special projects that spin out from the Midnight Myth, as I already mentioned, and my new podcast, Sleep and Sorcery, now has two episodes out on podcast players, another one coming this Wednesday. But also, if you are a meditator or someone who likes yoga or any other uh, health practices, meditation, mindfulness, and whatever, I would highly recommend downloading the app Insight Timer and finding Sleep and Sorcery there because you'll get episodes usually a few days early and there are three episodes out now. And our other side project, The Wheel of Ka, is getting back into the swing. There have been tons of business and family-related updates since the last time you heard from the boys, Derek and Steve, at Wheel of Ka. But do you want to share any updates? We'll be back soon. Excellent. With more of The Stand. Absolutely. We started the stand and man, it was 2021 when we really picked it up. There was only one baby. Now, now there's there, two. Now Steve has a baby. 
I wasn't a business owner. Now I am. And Steve actually works with me at the business, which is pretty cool. Yeah, these are unbreakable ties that bind here. Absolutely. All right, shall we do the briefest brief recaps? Yep, just leave us a rating or a review wherever you can find us. The Godfather starts at the day of his daughter's wedding, where we see Don Vito Corleone dulling out favors to wedding guests using his mob power. We get a glimpse of how powerful he is when the Godfather's own godson not being able to get cast into a movie as he is a famous singer who wants to transition into acting is not allowed to get cast in a part that would make him a big star. And the Godfather chops off the head of these movie studios horse. And he wakes up with the head of the horse in his bed as to intimidate him, ensuring that the Godfather's godson will get the part. We then move to the mob machinations where Don Vito Corleone meets with Virgo Salazzo, a top opium man who's going to start smuggling heroin into the United States. The Don, the godfather, pardon me, doesn't believe that the drug business is good as a good business and says no, kicking off a mob war where the godfather gets shot and in his absence, there is a power vacuum as he's recovering from these wounds. Then we get to meet Michael Corleone, who instead of joining the family business, goes off and serves in World War II, is going to college, and is dating a nice young woman, and he decides to get mixed up into the business, killing Virgo Salazzo and his police captain guardian, guardian bodyguard, I should say. Yeah. Michael Corleone then takes a long vacation in Sicily where he's in hiding. He gets married, but the mob war ends up reaching him and his wife ends up being blown up in a botched assassination attempt against Michael. Michael returns and marries Kay and decides he's going to join the the father's business. And then we see Michael Corleone using his machinations as the new godfather, taking out all of the enemies of the family, including his own brother-in-law, who he blames for the death of his true brother, Sonny, which before the brother-in-law gets killed, does confess to having a hand in Sonny's demise. The movie ends with Michael and Kay and Michael lying to Kay saying that he had nothing to do with the death of his brother-in-law and then the door closing Kay out as he is being kissed in the hand and honored as the new true king of crime. Whew. Very brief recap. Yeah. Lots of things. I didn't want to waste too much time recapping it. I think we know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Does The Godfather hold up? You know, I did not care for The Godfather. It insists upon itself. Okay, Peter Griffin. Yeah. No, uh, yes, it's amazing. It's it's perfect. It is such a good movie. Every single uh, action, every reaction, every character, every moment just folds into a perfectly intricately crafted story that just you can see it barreling towards this tragic conclusion um, that's also a triumphant conclusion if you view it from another perspective so it's fascinating it's beautiful it looks like a Caravaggio painting in every frame it's just outstanding in terms of the technical craft that Coppola and his cinematographer are working with the performances are outrageous I truly think that at his best, Al Pacino. I think Al Pacino really is one of our greatest living actors. And that is me saying, you know, performances like this in The Godfather, performances like Angels in America, but also performances like The Devil's Advocate, where he just goes 
totally buck wild and falls totally into this Nick Cagey outrageousness. I just think he has such range and power. And in this, I really love how restrained and reserved he is while also just communicating so much through his eyes. So I love the performances top to bottom. This is an outstanding film in American cinema. There are a few mythologies that are present that bind American cinema together. One of them undoubtedly is the Western and the cowboy and the American myth as the tamers of a wild West and these cowboys who were the ones that tamed the wild West from all of the criminals and vandals frontier justice. And the other one I would argue is also the gangster gangster movies and mom movies have been a part of cinema almost from the very beginning. It is something that American filmmakers go back to time and time again. If you look at the list of the greatest American movies, there are going to be gangster movies on it, and in particular, Italian-American gangster movies. They reign supreme to some. And undoubtedly, of the American mafia movies, The Godfather, to me, stands at the top of the pile. It is the creme de la creme. It is the artistic epoch. It triumphs over all others in my not-so-humble opinion. And it is part of the fabric of our cinematic and American myth-making that we enjoy these stories about the mafia. I think there's worth interrogating the answer to why do we enjoy it so much, and part of it is in doubt, what you mentioned, the technical craft by which this movie is made, the artistry that is involved in it, the fact that it is acted perfectly, directed perfectly, shot perfectly, scored perfectly. Lit perfectly. Every single frame of this movie, there is something that you can point to that is technically outstanding, artistically innovative, and just phenomenal. So yes, but the question is, why do the best myth makers, why do the great American storytellers go to and tackle mob movies because you could do a lot of different things. If you're Francis Ford Coppola, why the Godfather is a really important question. And one that I do want to get to as we unpack this movie, but truly it is a phenomenal movie. It is one that is going to be multi-generational when my son comes of age and I feel it is appropriate. I'm going to sit down and say, it's time for you to watch the Godfather. It's time for you to experience this amazing movie, just as my father did for me. And I think that is phenomenal. The Midnight Myth seeks to find universal themes in storytelling. And there is something universal about American cinema and the mobster genre and the gangster genre. It has lasted for so long. Why is that? How did that come to be? Is something that we're going to be unpacking here today at this episode. But yeah, it holds up. I think of all of the brilliant actors that are in this movie and the amazing careers that they've had. And you could argue for each one of them that their best performance is The Godfather. Yeah, that's a really good point. I just want to underscore this idea that you've brought up that the mob movie, the gangster movie, is on the same level of the Western as creating American cinematic mythologies. And, you know, the story that comes to mind is that when I went to film school, the very first class I took in my major was American classic cinema. It was a critical studies course where we would screen a film every week 
and discuss it and write papers. So the first week, the first week of college, in the first class of American classic cinema, the film they showed us was the 1932 original Scarface. It was a mob movie. It was a gangster movie and something that led to a very iconic performance of Al Pacino in the 80s. So that was alongside things like Stagecoach and John Ford films and uh, Citizen Kane and Casablanca. So I think you're absolutely right that the gangster movie is as deeply embedded in the fabric of American cinema and American mythology as the Western and other genres that we grew up with. Agreed. So let us turn our eye to analysis. I have some things I want to share that are historical in nature. Would you be okay if I open that up? Absolutely. Go for it. So a few historical questions that I wanted to tackle here in this episode. How did so much Italian immigration happen? When did it happen? And what is the actual history around the mafia to what can we say about the uh, historical sort of veracity, the truthness of the Godfather? Is this representative of anything real in our history or is it all fabricated? In the year 1870, there were approximately 25,000 Italian immigrants living in America. They were largely from Northern Italy. By 1924, there were 4 million And Italian-Americans currently are the fifth largest ethnic group in America. So there was a huge surge between 1870 and 1924 of Italian immigration. And where they immigrated from also changed. The history of this dates back to the Middle Ages, actually. We could probably trace it back to the fall of the Roman Empire. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) So the Roman Empire falls and Italy is not one unified country but rather a bunch of small principalities where local kings, dukes, princes reign over small city-states in different areas. By the turn of the 1800s to the 1900s, there was a push to unify Italy as one country that was ultimately successful, and a series of civil wars occurred. During this time, Southern Italy, in particular the island of Sicily, was very much on the outskirts of this new unified nation. There wasn't a ton of law and order. There wasn't a ton of infrastructure. There was mass disease, famine, lack of um, government services, etc. All in all, it wasn't a good place to be. This also happened to coincide with the rise of steam power and crossing the Atlantic now became incredibly cheap. One could get a ticket on a boat and cross the Atlantic very easily. And there were stories of people finding fame and fortune in America, and America had opened up its borders to immigration at this time, saying, please come to America. This caused what is, this is what caused, pardon me, what historians call the Great Arrival. This is a huge transatlantic immigration from places like Sicily into America. There were lots of immigrants coming from all over Europe for similar reasons. Unrest, famine, disease caused people to come. They all came to this place called Ellis Island. Now, Ellis Island was a federally run immigration site. It took over because the city of New York had its own immigration, but it was so rife with political corruption and uh, abuses of power that the federal government stepped in and formed Ellis Island. And it was from Ellis Island where immigrants 
that were crossing the Atlantic would be processed. They would be checked. And then if they were diseased-free, they showed they had some skills, they were allowed to enter into the city of New York. While it was less politically corrupt, Ellis Island was definitely a place of misery and hardship. Because of the lack of translators, because of the bureaucracy, families were often separated, sometimes mothers and children, uh, the child would get lit in, but the mother or father would be sent back. So immigrants definitely had a tough time in Ellis Island, but nevertheless, millions of uh, Southern Italian immigrants were let into the country. Unlike other immigrant populations at this time, the Italians did something very interesting. Everyone entered New York, but for most immigrant populations, New York was a way station. They would come, they would get their feet wet, and they would go somewhere else, often in search for uh, work or for their fortunes. The Italian immigrants stayed in New York. This is what made them new, unique. And they also brought with them what some call the spirit of village in Italian, and I do not speak Italian, so I'm going to brutalize this. I apologize for the bad accent. Something called the campanesilmio, which means, translates roughly to those who live within the sound of the village church bells. Oh, I love that. Oh my God, that's so poetic. So they banded together and formed immigrant communities in New York, and they absolutely made a huge impact on the culture of New York City. And most of the Italian immigrants still live in the Northeast Coast today, though they have gone on lots of places. Yeah, like South Philadelphia. We live in a very highly saturated Italian immigrant community. This wasn't all sunshine and roses. In fact, the largest mass lynching that's happened in America's history happened in 1891, and it was against Italian immigrants. Um, a bunch of immigrants were arrested under suspicion of having murdered a town official. And when the case was thrown out, it was suspected that they used mob violence to get the case thrown out, which historians say there's absolutely no evidence of. And uh, I think something like 19 of them were just drug out of the jail cell and just executed. Wow. In fact, there was such anti-immigrant sentiment that in the 20s, after this mass immigration, Congress enacted laws to crack down on immigration, many laws which are still on the books today. So we went from a society saying, bring us all of your immigrants to, no, we don't actually want your immigrants, and a legacy that looms largely even into our own time as we struggle to handle immigration flowing not from uh, places like Sicily, but places like Central and South America right now. And there are still plenty of people that are anti-immigrant and anti-immigrant sentiment runs deep in America. Now, that's sort of the, the quick summary of how the Italian immigrants got here, what it was briefly like to be an Italian immigrant. I'd like to turn my attention next, unless if you have a comment about that. I just was so interested in that phrase, and I won't follow you in brutalizing it, but the living within the sound of village church bells, I think that's such an interesting thing to point out in the uh, sort of social and cultural customs that were brought by Italian immigrant communities. And the fact that that term incorporates so much, it holds so many feelings at once because it's like, it's not just community, it's not just village, it's also community and family around 
religious values and around central community hubs and community authority of the church. I think that is a really interesting thing that is brought into just that sentiment. Yeah. A sense of we are a village, us, us Sicilian immigrants. And when we get to New York, we're going to find each other and we're going to band together and we are going to stay together. And this is something that is also linked to the history of the mafia. Yes. Let me turn to that. Now I will say the history of the mafia is a slippery subject because it is secretive by its very nature. And so much that we know about the history of mafia comes from people who were caught, arrested, and then became informants. And one could argue, are these credible sources as they are professional criminals who are then now telling their story after having been caught? That being stated, there are a few things about the history of mafia that I think are interesting and relevant and um, that I'll bring up now. Great. So starters is the word mafia. According to a linguist named Selwyn Rab, mafia is a part Sicilian, part Arabic word, which roughly translates to acting as a protector against the arrogance of the powerful. Whoa. Oh my God. With these translations, it's just, I love language. So how did the mafia arise in Sicily and what is the mafia? And then ultimately how did it translate over to America? We've already discussed that Sicily was largely left out of the peace and prosperity of a unified Italian country. And there was an aristocratic landholding class left over from the Middle Ages that saw without central authority, they had a big problem is how do we protect our wealth and our privilege? And without a central government to turn to, to help, they started hiring muscle. They started hiring mafiosas. These mafiosas would help protect the land. They would help ensure that workers showed up on time. But it wasn't long until the people that were the muscle looked at the aristocrats and said, wait a second, let's just make this our land. And they outstid the aristocrats. It's worth noting that the mafia doesn't exist in Sicily if there was a strong central authority able to do things like dull out justice, able to do things like hold courts of law, able to do things like rein in the authority of this holdover landowning aristocratic class. Because that lack of central authority, it meant that there somebody had to do these things. There was also a fundamental mistrust of the central authority that existed. It wasn't doing its job very well. The Sicilians didn't look at themselves as an Italian. They looked at themselves as Sicilians. And so they thought that the power would ultimately be corrupted. And there's evidence to suggest that they were correct, that the new Italian government was dysfunctional and was corrupt. This led to another very important mafia concept called the Omerta. It is the mafia law of justice and silence. It means that you go to the mafia for justice. You do not go to the police. You do not go to the government. You do not go to the courts of law. And you are never, ever allowed to tell anyone about it. It is baked into it a cynicism about what the government can and cannot do and saying because they can't do justice, we will do it on our own by our own rules and our own laws and our own customs and we are never allowed to speak about it to anyone. Because power can't be trusted, we must do it on our own. You have the Italian immigrants coming to a new land 
with this tradition of the Omerta already built in, with the tradition of the mafia as those that you go for justice, and you have them in a country where they are largely cut out of the legal system with very few avenues for legitimate work, and what do they do? If you can't go to the police, what do you do? You go to the Don. You go to the mafia. And the mafia arises as a place for Italian-American immigrants to get justice, just as they did in Sicily, and they would never tell anyone about it. A cynicism of central authority, the inability to have courts of law to protect you, rising the gang and the mafia violence. This gets shot with massive amounts of money at Prohibition. Alcohol becomes illegal, and suddenly everybody is thirsty for a shot of whiskey or a mug of beer. Already the infrastructure, the groundwork was there for people that don't give a damn about the law and think that the law is fundamentally bad, now have a product that everybody wants, and then they step in as bootleggers, and the rise of the Cosa Nostra, which translates to, in English, our thing, which is the word that you can say about the mafia. It's our thing. So because now the Cosa Nostra rises as a multi-million dollar, huge nationwide business in bootlegging, and the mob is born as we know it and as it's characterized here in The Godfather. There, the five families is a legitimate thing. There were five families in New York and there was one Don among all Dons who ran them. That was uh, Charlie Lucky Luciano, who really organized the mob into a national business with him at the very, very tippy top. And since then, it is theorized that the mob power and influence has really dwindled. The rise of FBI's, the, you know, the liquor is no longer prohibited, but the mob does still exist in America to this day. It is also theorized that the American mafia at its heyday was more powerful and more wealthy and had more influence than the mafia in Sicily ever had. That it was a legitimate, like we see Don Corleone as the boss of all bosses and very much Charlie Lucky Luciano was the boss of all bosses. There's a really good article on the FBI's website that documents who the main bosses were from Charlie Luciano and where they passed to, how they died, and their lives were, for the most part, very few of bosses of bosses ended up happy. They got very rich and most got killed, just as we see the Don gets gunned down. So there is some historical accuracy to the portrayal of the mafia that we see. And that's my history of immigration and the mob. That was so fascinating. There's so much I want to unpack. One of the first things that I just want to seize onto is how much this idea of alternative justice or these structures of loyalty and hierarchy sort of echo a medieval feudalism in some ways, not an exact one-to-one, -one, but there's this sense of like, you have loyalty to a lord who might have loyalty to a higher lord, and there is a structured system of violence that holds this entire thing together. And if one person turns on another, then you have this disordered, unbalanced chaos of violence and lawlessness. So I think that's really fascinating thinking about 
how much this echoes other structures of power and how power balance or how power vacuums are filled. Um, so that is something that was really pinging for me. I'm also thinking about alternative justice in the sense of the dichotomy that you brought up between the gangster movie and the Western. And the Western, we can still identify as a romanticized version of the actual frontier in the Old West. It's not a, an accurate portrayal, but there is this kind of, uh, there's this world-underworld dichotomy where the Western romanticizes this idea of justice sought out by the common man, but still upholding the authority of the good sheriff or the authority of the good king figure in the American West versus the gangster movie, which says, no, you can't trust any of them. You can't trust anyone who is in mainstream power because they are looking out for their own back and I'm the one who's looking out for you. Uh, there is a really complex balance, I think, that Coppola is playing with that every other director who works with gangster movies is also walking that line between how do we tell this story with the with the big R romance that is there and not romanticize it. Because it is, by its very nature, uh, full of poetry and full of these tragic themes and these mythological uh, gravity, but it's also violent and hard and chaotic and terrible. So uh, yeah, those are just kind of things that are spilling forward from my mind as I process how that history relates to what we see in The Godfather. Yeah, I want to get to my answer to the question, why mob movies? And then conversely, why The Godfather as the godfather of mob movies. I think you hit the nail on the head there in connecting the cowboy and the mobster as very similar in a certain aspect and from a certain point of view. America started as a nation fundamentally distrusting centralized power. It started rebelling against an empire. America to date still has an air of cynicism around central authority baked into our politics and baked into our culture. It's part of the reason Star Wars features rebels rebelling against an empire, and that is one of the most commercially successful movies of all time. It's also part and parcel of the cowboy. The cowboy goes west, seeking his fortune, finds no justice or law, and a lone gunman steps up to enforce justice on their own, hence taming the West and bringing America from the East to the West. The mobster, the Italian immigrant, comes to America finding fortune and fame, but no law and order, and hence steps in a lone gangster, forming an organization so the Italian immigrants can get the American dream and that they can prosper and have justice. The very first scene in America in the Godfather the first line was I believed in America believed past tense it is about an Italian immigrant stating the failure of the American judicial system to protect an innocent girl and punish those that hurt her and having to turn to the mafia for justice it is the failure of the courts of law there were police that protected you in courts of law so you didn't need a friend like me until they failed you. Now you need a friend like me because the system is not going to protect you. 
it will fail you, and hence in steps the Don. That sort of ethos, part of American culture, to be wary of authority, to seek justice on your own terms. There's a reason why Americans own more guns than any other civilized nation. Because Americans are deeply cynical about power structures and think that they can't protect them and they have a God-given right to protect themselves. This is part of what makes the mobster so compelling. It's part of what made the cowboy so compelling. It's why we go back to these time and time again. But to answer your concern, how do we not big R romanticize it? How do we not fall in love with the Godfather? How do we not fall in love with Vito? Well, maybe we do. Because after all, they're not murderers as he sniffs his rose. But what happens in this movie? What happens to the character Michael Corleone, the person that wants to be free of the mob? Does he have any choice? And here is the onion. Here is why I think this is the best of the movies. Because it doesn't big R romanticize it. The very man who decides he's going to join the mafia, Michael Corleone, to protect his father that he's willing to do mob-style justice to protect his father, ends up losing his first wife, ends up lying to his second wife, ends up killing his brother-in-law. He stands as the godfather to his nephew in the same breath while he has executed the orders to kill his brother-in-law. The hypocrisy of the romanticism is made bare in the ritual of the baptism. As Michael rejects Satan in all of his sins, he now steps in as the actor of horrible murders. The Don starts in the very first scene saying, after all, we're not murderers. And it ends with Michael Corleone, now free from his father's influence, becoming a mass murderer. And all of this was about power and money and vengeance. None of it was ever about making a better life for any family making the life better for any Italians, making this a new, purer form of justice, free from corrupt institutions. No, those institutions, maybe they are corrupt, but they are better than the mob violence. Because this is the story of Michael Corleone's lack of free will, lack of choice, and his ultimate downfall into becoming a cold, ruthless, lying murderer, this movie exposes the tragedy behind the mobster myth. It is not something that we should glorify. It is not something that we should aspire to. Unlike the cowboy, which still stands as a hero, Francis Ford Coppola tears down the mob image, starting from the noble and gentle and brilliant Don, and, and who doesn't want drugs to happen, who wants to end the wars, who prefers reason in talking to violence, who refuses to kill the two perpetrators who kill Bonacera's, I'm sorry, who beat Bonacera's daughter, it now ends with Michael watching as his brother-in-law gets choked to death in his car. Yeah, yes, exactly. Um, amazing. So I, yeah, I want to talk a lot more about the rituals, especially the baptism and the wedding, but I want to latch on to another thing that you said just now because I think you got to the heart of the movie and the heart of the movie for me is the is the tragedy of not just Michael, but Vito. And I do fall a little bit in love with Vito Corleone in this, not just because I think Marlon Brando is giving a really excellent and iconic performance, but because the closer you look at him, the more sadness you carry for what 
ideals you think this man must have had in the beginning. And I think a lot of this is confirmed later in The Godfather 2. I won't bring much of the sequel into this analysis because I want to focus just on The Godfather. But in Vito's eyes, in Vito's stature, in the way he carries himself, you can see the weight of his choices upon his shoulders. And you get the sense that this man truly, in the beginning, did get into this out of a genuine desire to protect his family and his people. And that is a big F family, if you will. That is the, the village. That is the people who live within the, the church bells of his village. And this man, in making the choices that he made to uphold those ideals, slipped further and further into a world of violence and alternative justice. He is maybe not a moral man, but he is a principled man in the most literal sense of the word. He has principles that he lives by, and those, though not moral by our standards, at least uphold a sense of order within his organization. Michael is not a principled man. He is not a moral man. He would have us believe that he is in the beginning, and we certainly believe that he was when he went to war and became a war hero and fell in love with Kay in the beginning. He loses something, and that is a deep and tragic irony because, as we're told time and again, Vito did not want this life for Michael. He maybe did not expect much of Sonny and Fredo, but for Michael, he expected more. And when you are a parent, and particularly when you are a parent who immigrated from another country and is hoping for the promise of America to pay off, all you want is for your child to have more than what you had and to have a better life than you had. You want your child to be better than you. It's the simplest thing in the world. You want to give as much as you can to the next generation so that they can be better for you and make the world better. And Michael is making the world worse. And Vito knows it, and that is tragic. I think the most beautiful expression of Vito that we get is in his days of retirement. And yes, he experiences great loss when he loses Sonny. And you can see the, the deep tragedy that he wears and the deep guilt and shame that he wears because he has brought this about onto his family out of what he thought were noble intentions. But just playing with his grandson in a garden in his final hours is probably the happiest he has been in his entire life, even though he has lost the son that he thought was going to carry the torch and be better than him. And this is playing in this really complex mythological soup too, right? This idea of fathers and sons is something that we keep coming back to with Darth Vader, something we keep coming back to with the Harry Potter series, with everything. There's this Freudian tension that runs through it, but there's this deep mythological tension that runs through it as well. What do we always hear about? Fathers who fear that their sons will come up and overpower them. Fathers who fear that they will be defeated by their sons and they will be dethroned by their sons. This is close to what we see with Vito and Michael, but it's not quite there. What we get instead is Vito wishing that his son could uh, dethrone him in a different way than he actually does. He wants Michael to be the son 
than be the, the Zeus where he was the Hades. He wants Michael to go out into the, the world instead of staying in the underworld with him and taking his throne. I love that. I do think there is a mythological feel to this movie. There is a huge weight behind these characters. In many ways, you could argue that Vito operates as Kronos, as Saturn, as the Titan by which all of the gods and goddesses are born, the one that helps make and shape the universe, but yet fears the uprising of the Olympians, the inevitability that the way that he does things will change and that the next group might unseat him. And what happens as Zeus becomes the god of the Olympians? He is petty, he's ruthless, and he's cold-hearted. No different than Kronos in many ways, maybe worse. And Michael then, as he becomes the Olympian, as he becomes the new god of the underworld, the new god of the mob, is more ruthless, is more cold-hearted, and is less principled. It is worth noting that the historical origination of the mafia was born out of necessity, was born out of a lack of authority and a a desire for people to have some form of justice amongst a political system that had and was failing actual Sicilians. It's worth noting that it became over time about power and control and money and violence. No different than Michael and for Vito. Vito, we can see, is emerging out of a form of necessity. He lived in Sicily, he came to America, and he had to build this life because to him there was no other way to protect his family. Michael has a choice. Michael could have gone a different way, and Michael ends up going into the mafia. And in many ways, this is a question that I toy with here. Does Michael in this movie as a character really have free will or is it inevitable? Is it his destiny to become the next Don and become a more ruthless Don than his father? Or is it something that he willfully and acts and chooses? And I think that is an interesting question at the heart of that character. I have some thoughts, but I would love for you to kick that off. This is definitely something that I wanted to address when you were talking about it earlier, too, because I think it is a really complicated question, and I think the movie doesn't want us to have a satisfying answer to it. Does Michael have a choice? Does Michael have free will, or is he destined on this path? And we do, at many points, get the indication that we are watching a Greek-style tragedy. We are watching a story where a character rises to a great height and then must inevitably fall. And this, again, is one part of a larger saga. So we will, in the later movies, see the continued story of Michael. But in in one perspective, you're watching the rise of Michael through this one, but you're also watching the moral fall of Michael. So does he have a choice? I think in the comparison to Vito, we are supposed to believe that Michael... Uh, should and and would and could be able to make a different choice. And the scene that indicates him making a willful decision is the one in the restaurant with uh, Salazzo, sorry? Salazzo. Salazzo and the police officer when he takes the guns and he, uh, it, it's a wonderful, perfectly acted scene where Al Pacino is just doing a thousand things with his eyes and then decides to pull the trigger and make the choice and then that sends him down 
his path. So yes, I think we're given a very clear textual scene where Michael makes that decision willfully. But then we're given all these indications that there is some someone else pulling the strings, something else pulling the strings, a higher force. What is the image on the cover of the book by Mario Puzo and the movie? It's a marionette string. It's the, the idea that we're all being pulled by these higher forces, that we are driven by the stars and cosmic phenomena or something. And you'll remember that the movie ends with a baptism, with Michael being literally made godfather to Connie's baby, and Connie's baby being baptized into the church and into the Corleone crime family. And this is presumably how Michael was baptized. His godfather was standing by his side knowing that crime was being carried out in Michael's father's name at this very moment. Maybe not the same type of crime, but there's this sense that through ritual and through the complex forces that pull you into a network of alternative justice bringers, that there's not really a way out, and you will always be caught in the strings of this larger web. You know, you mentioned that the point where Michael kills Salazzo and McCluskey as the, the choice point for him, as the crossroad, and certainly that's where he is, there's no way out at this point. He has killed a cop and a gangster and has to hide, and he is now officially part of the family. I would argue there's another scene before then, which to me is more of the choice moment where he he does make a turn, and that's in the hospital. When he gets to the hospital and Vito is sick and he knows that they're coming to get him, he goes to his father and, and almost as a whisper, he says, I'm with you, pledging his loyalty to his father, realizing that he's the only person there that can protect his father and that he wants to keep his father alive at any means necessary, and he successfully does that. He delays the assassination, and he does so with a ruse using the baker, um, the baker's uh, apprentice and wards off the gangsters, and then McCluskey comes and punches him and breaks his jaw. That's the moment to me where he pledges fealty to the Don. And... If that's the moment where he does that, that then leads to I'm now in the room where it happens and I come up with the plan and then I execute the plan. To me, that choice moment of I'm with you is like the moment where you would kiss the Don's ring and now you are part of the family. That is an excellent point. That's a moment that I wrote down him saying, I'm with you. I'm with you now, father, I think is exactly what he says too after that. And that again falls into this kind of father and son conflict. And it's one of a few moments that I, I took in my notes uh, that, that show us Michael's steps along this journey early on during the wedding. He says to Kay, that's my father, Kay, that's not me. And then a few scenes later, I'm with you now, father. He has a chance to make a different choice in the restaurant, which probably would have led to his own demise. Uh, and then later in the scene uh, in the garden with Vito, he's talking about, Michael's talking about his own son, his three-year-old son, and says something to the effect of, he's much smarter than me about his three-year-old, showing again that this cycle is going to repeat, that there is this chance that flickers this like glimmer of hope that you could surpass your father in terms of being a better man. But in fact, 
this web is just of sons surpassing their father into being a more successful criminal. And because his father is in the hospital and Michael's the only one that can help him, I would argue that structurally the narrative is pulling him rather than him make him being a, a willful actor. Now, by the time he's pulling out a gun and he's shooting people, now that's him moving the story forward. But at that moment in time, the story pushes him in to the mob life. And because his desire is to protect his father, not become a gangster because that he's able to justify this transition morally from a college student war hero to the heir to the empire and to becoming the next and more ruthless godfather. And in this respect, I textually, I kind of read it that this was inevitably going to happen. The cycle of mob violence pulls Michael in and yes, he runs with it. Once he gets in, he runs with it and becomes the new Don. But it, because he gets pulled in suggests to me that the tragedy, those who seek the Omerta to protect their family, ultimately decimate and injure and hurt their family. Sonny dies. Fredo's in Las Vegas. Carlo gets murdered. Michael lies to Kay and Kay knows it. The whole idea that this is about protecting the family by the end of this movie is completely shattered. And the idea that I, 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 I think the movie suggests like a Greek tragedy, the puppet strings, the mob violence, the cycle of violence and gangsterism is so powerful that Michael maybe doesn't have a choice. And that's what makes it a tragedy. If in fact it is Michael's choice and it is purely of his own free will, it is less tragic to me than it is if it is him being pulled into it. And then once he gets there, he runs with it and makes several choices. And in that respect, I think you're right. When we, when we see him talking to his father about his son and about the cycle of violence, you do get a sense of foreboding that Michael's own son, which we know in the Godfather three doesn't happen, which is, you know, different, a different topic for a different podcast, but you get a sense in that scene that this, this cycle does and will continue. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's Connie's baby too. So there's this idea that the next generation is inheriting our sins. And that's something we've come back to time and again on the Midnight Myth, especially in the ways that tragedy and generational conflict communicate across those lines. Uh, you know, we talked about generational trauma in Encanto, which I think is part of this as well. Like Michael's generation is inheriting the trauma of the immigrants who came across uh, the ocean and then found that the American dream was not accessible to them and faced so much violence and turmoil in those early days in this country. I think there is intergenerational trauma that's inherited, but there's this sense, uh, you know, and this is something we talked about in Hereditary, which is a Greek tragedy of inheriting your earlier generation's issues or their pain or even their, you know, their mental health problems. And there is so much, I think, that argues in this that maybe it's not uh, a higher power, maybe it's not God, maybe it's not even the devil that's laying the traps of this tragedy for you. It's the choices made in previous generations. And those things are heavy to think about. Thinking about how the choices we make today 
will influence our children and our grandchildren's lives in ways we cannot possibly conceive of, it really infuses all of our choices with a deep significance and a deep weight. Uh, so that's just something I'm meditating on as well. Yeah, millions of people don't hop a boat and cross the Atlantic in search of a better life because things are going great for them. Yeah. That's, you know, no, no mass immigration movement happened because everything is awesome in their country. So let's all just all pick up and go to a new one. That's not how it works. It is because of trauma. It is because of the failure of law and order. It is because of famine and disease and war. These are the reasons why immigration happens and people are seeking a better life. And that trauma does have an impact and it does get passed on. And in the story of The Godfather, which is a story of America, it shows the cost of violence and the cost of greed and the cost of seeking power and also the cost of vengeance and thinking vengefully. One of my favorite moments of Vito, again, who in this watch just rose to the top as my favorite character. And I had never really watched him with such studied kind of seriousness before. And he really got to me, but in the meeting with the heads of the five families, when Sonny is gone and Vito is acknowledging that there has been so much violence on all sides of this war. And he says, how did, how did it get so far? How did it ever get so far? And there's just this sense of loss and regret radiates from him that I think is really powerful. And it is, again, a recognition of things being out of human control to an extent that forces like vengeance can move our hand, can pull a trigger for us because we are no longer in control of our emotions and our actions when we let that take over. And the Don says, I forgo the vengeance on my son, all the while knowing that it's a lie all the while knowing it's going to take time, it's going to take effort, but my son's going to come in and avenge all of this. And every single person that had a hand in harming or hindering the Corleone Empire in the first act of the movie are all dead by the end of it. So that the idea that there is honor and nobility in this oath, in this brotherhood of gangsters, in this, there's a code among these these thieves is completely laid to bear, and is completely and totally wiped out. And when you have massacred all of your enemies in the name of your own personal vengeance, maybe you've become the bad guy. Are we the baddies? Are we the baddies? Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is to me why the Godfather stands head and shoulders above the rest because of the character, Michael, and because we can read the text as his moral downfall, and because of the tragedy that he may not have had a choice, this would have, may have been his destiny, which I would argue is structurally not uh, transcendental. It's not that there is a magical puppeteer from another plane of reality pulling and moving him. It's not like the Olympians or the fates are guiding him. It's because mob violence does attract and succumb and destroy people that Michael himself gets morally destroyed by the end of this movie. He starts as a good man and he ends as a ruthless killer and a liar. We was all proud of you being a hero and all your father too. That's one of those things that just like, that's a quote that just gets you with like a dagger in the heart that everyone says to Michael, yeah, you were a hero and he was our hero. We thought he was our hero. And now here he is, this 
super villain in training. I want to talk a little bit about the Sicily segment because this is a part of the movie that I think is really fascinating and is another meditation on the inevitability of the tragedy and also a really sad interlude where we think Michael could end up with a happy ending and and be a good man in a new way. He takes off to Sicily after the murder to get away and be protected. And as you said in the recap, ends up meeting a beautiful woman named Apollonia, a very important name to us because it contains the name of the god Apollo. And he marries her, woos her with the consent of her family. It's a very traditional courtship that we watch that I think is really beautifully executed uh, that feels suddenly like a different movie for a little while. It feels like we've stepped into a kind of a Fellini film almost, a fantasy life that Michael could live in this pastoral Arcadian landscape. We take off, we we leave the court. It's like a, a pastoral comedy of Shakespeare's where it's like, there's all these problems at court, so we have to go to the forest. We have to go to the uh, untouched landscape and we have to work out our problems there before we go back to court. And he has a hint that he might get like a traditional life, marriage, maybe a family, and just living in the Sicilian countryside for the rest of his life. And that, of course, is robbed from him in a moment of shocking violence and betrayal. I want to bring that up just because I I think that interlude is really fascinating as this meditation on choices that Michael could make, but because I think it also contrasts the rest of the movie in a way that is Apollonian and Dionysian in a way. He is tempted by a life in Sicily, married to a woman named Apollonia, where he might be the Apollo we thought he was. He might be the man of reason, the man of insight, the man of poetry and music. He might be an incarnation of the god Apollo rather than the Dionysian, the indulgent, the greedy. And these are dichotomies we have discussed before, and I'm I'm putting them in a sort of black and white that I think is not entirely... Um, reflective of the the complexity therein but i do like that even the the colors change we see light and sun and brightness and pastel in sicily and then in new york everything is low lit everything is warm tone everything is caravaggio versus uh the the, the pastoral landscape a few things i want to point out too because i think that's a beautiful point One, Michael is in the old country in Sicily. The god Apollo was originally a, they suspect, from Troy, because he was the patron god of Troy, adopted by the Greeks and adopted by the Romans. The ancient pagan Romans had had their own gods and goddesses that they mapped into the Greeks except for Apollo. Apollo is Apollo in Greek. He is Apollo in Latin. Yeah. He stands apart from all of the other deities where there is Zeus and Jupiter, uh, Aphrodite and and Venus, etc. Apollo is still steady just as Apollo, so that's worth pointing out. Two, they say that Michael is struck by the thunderbolt. This is language used to mythologize his time in Italy. He's wandering the countryside. He meets a beautiful woman in the countryside, almost like she is a nymph. 
And what is he de- happens? He gets struck as the thunderbolt, no different than getting struck by Cupid's arrow and falls madly in love at first sight. Like a good Sicilian, he goes to the father first and asks for courtship permission. He wants to observe all of the traditional rituals. And what does Apollonia have in her hair? A purple ribbon. What is purple? It is the color of the Roman gods. It is the color of the Roman emperors. So all of this is to make this feel like it is in a different movie. It's using different cinematic language. Michael enters into a fairy tale. He hears of his brother's death, and though he grieves, it is not a long grieving process because here Michael gets to be reborn as a totally different person, completely untouched by the violence. But the violence has its reach. This is just a fairy tale. He is living a fictitious life. She is not a nymph. He is not Apollo. She is not the son reborn to him. The son, not a as a child, but as yeah, S-U-N. Yeah. She is not this radiant ray of sunshine striking him with the Cupid's arrow, donning the purple of the Roman emperors and giving him access to this new and pastoral and beautiful life of leisure. It is all a lie. The mob violence even reaches in then and reaches there and murders this innocent young woman. Everything that Michael loves, everything blows up then. And this is another example of, is Michael really in control of his destiny or is the mob violence really what's driving him? And I would argue that's another example of him attempting to live this sort of mythic fairy tale life that is so telegraphed differently in the cinematic language from the rest of the movie. And what happens? His wife is destroyed. This life is blown up and he has to return back to America and take his seat at his father's side. Yeah. Amazing. What else you got? I said I was going to spend a little bit of time with ritual and I want to do that now. I think it's really significant that this movie begins with a wedding and ends with a baptism There are several other rituals that we observe throughout. We see funerals and we see informal rituals take place. We see mob rituals take place. Things like meetings of the five families. We don't see, and this is something you pointed out, uh, those formal mob rituals that we imagine happen behind closed doors. Things that happen in Goodfellas per se, like making ceremonies. We don't see any of that. We are largely coded in the space of Catholic religious rituals that take place throughout this movie and bookend it so beautifully. There's a great saying that you'll hear time and again when it comes to like classical theater, which is that tragedy ends in death and comedy ends in marriage. And we've been talking about this movie as a tragedy this entire time, but it doesn't end in just death. It ends in baptism. It ends in new life. And I think that, as we've been saying, reaffirms this idea of lack of choice or being caught in the web of the violence around you that is very, very hard, if not impossible, to escape. Both of these rituals signify new beginnings, right? A wedding represents a new joining of your family, It represents the creation of a family where there was nothing before. It represents ties that go as deep, if not deeper than blood. 
and potential. It's about what will be created between this new union, whether that's procreation in the form of children and a new generation, or just the creative output of their love. Maybe they'll get married and start a podcast. You have no idea. Probably not in Connie's case. But a marriage is about new life. A marriage is about new beginnings. So is a baptism. Very literally, it is about saving a child from damnation. It is about recognizing this child's life and existence, honoring them, and clouding them with holy water so that they don't go to hell. Great idea. But it's also about the parents and the godparents, more importantly, especially in the Catholic ritual. This is a new beginning for Connie's baby, and this is a baptism for Michael as well. As he is saying, I renounce Satan and all of his works. I believe in God the Father and becomes a God Father. He is also carrying out horrific acts of violence and vengeance. This tells us, as all of the clues in the movie do, that the strings are being pulled. We may not know by who, we may not know how far those strings reach back up into our family trees and our histories and legacies, but we also pull the strings for the generations going forward. I absolutely, absolutely love that point. I think this has been a phenomenal episode. I've really enjoyed talking about The Godfather. Lots of fun to research. We've done 200 episodes. 200! Midnight Myth listeners, thank you for sticking with us. Thank you for being patient with our irregular recording and posting schedule. And as always, until next time, be kind. Leave the gun.